Good morning, Redeemer. It is a pleasure and honor to be with you all to preach the word today. Um, I just want to thank you for all the loving comments and congratulations of celebrating my birthday this past week. Um, you know you've turned 36 years old when you get a lower back massager and you get excited. So that is, that is the sign of the age here. Um, well, if you've been with us this year, you'll know that we've been looking at the Great Commission for the past 13 weeks. And before that, we were working through the book of James. So let's just pick up right where we left off. James chapter 3. You can turn your Bibles there as in God's good providence, as, as Pastor Craig last week preached on wanting the right things, wanting the things that, that Christ longs for us to want in our obedience to him, we look today at perhaps the biggest challenge that the body of Christ has today in fulfilling the Great Commission, and that is our tongues. So uh, turn, tap your Bibles to Book of James, chapter 3. If you're looking at a pew Bible, this is on page 1012. Um, And you can just find it in your bulletin if if all those routes do not work. So let's all stand out of respect for God's Word. Listen to it, speak to us, and most importantly, implant it in your heart. James, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we will guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things." How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You may be seated. Let us, let us pray together. Father, let your word speak to us today to make us the body of Christ that longs to be like Jesus in our speech. Life-giving words that are uncompromising in truth, unending in love, and unlike the evilness of the world. Let this time cause us to see the need for the living word to be in our lives, in our hearts, and in our tongues. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin uh, with a story told by the author and theologian Samuel Logan in in a must-read book for our times called The Good Name. He speaks of the story of, of the year 362 A.D. You see, the Roman emperor Julian was wondering how he was going to get the pagan, the pagan temples up and running again without the interference of those pesky Christians getting in the way. And you see, at this point in history, Christianity had spread through the Roman Empire like a tidal wave. 
about 50 years prior, the former emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was legal. And so without persecution, Christianity grew in such a way that it became a cultural and political force. So, so the emperor Julian didn't want any pushback from the Christians for reopening the pagan temples again. So how would the emperor Julian pass through his agenda? Did he do it through persecuting Christians, jailing them up? Julian being a deceptively crafty politician, had another strategy. He knew that the Christians at the time were in the middle of a huge theological debate known as the Arian heresy. And he knew that these bishops were all in disagreement with another, and they were, they were publicly disagreeing with one another slanderously in the public square. And so he did what any sneaky person would do. He brought all the Christian bishops to his temple and just politely advise them to lay aside their differences and observe their own beliefs and have them dialogue without fear of opposition from one another. How do you think that went? <laughs> you see, the historian Sam Logan writes this, As the freedom to disagree increased the Christians' dissension, Emperor Julian knew afterwards that he had no fear of a united Christianity, knowing as he did from experience that no wild beasts are such enemies to mankind as are most of the Christians in their deadly hatred of one another. And sadly, Julian was right. The Christians of Julian's day turned their tristies and their blogs and their Twitter feeds against each other, and the Emperor Julian reopened the pagan temples to the masses with little to no opposition. In other words, while Christians were fighting for the right theology and missed the, the rightful terror of the Arian heresy, they did so in such a way in their speech that demolished their testimony and allowed for the world to gain a foothold. So today, I want to ask you a question to consider. Um, what does it mean to speak like a Christian? I imagine that there are many of you who have, have, have thoughts regarding this question. Sadly, I imagine that Many of you are thinking right now of a negative stereotype because of the very same connotations that Emperor Julian had and led him to believe. And quite rightly, maybe we have had personal experiences of Christians speaking to us in a manner that is indistinguishable from the rest of the world. So we turn to Scripture. Our sermon passage is a, is a very familiar passage for many of you who might have grown up in the church, but, but what we often miss with this text is the intended audience and the hearers that James was writing to. You see, James isn't concerned about some vague and general moral principle about how one individual should speak to another individual. James is, is specifically centered on how the gathered body of Christ, the church, ought to see how their speech imitates the Savior and God that they worship. Unlike the way that perhaps some of us were taught to apply this text of Scripture, it's, James is not so much interested in the vocab words that are taboo versus the vocab words that are not, but, but, but it's so much as what our words say about the Jesus that we profess to have given our lives to. God wants us to consider in James chapter 3 what it means to speak like a Christian. So today we're looking at four things, four things that our text wishes for the church to see. One, the power of words. Two, the, the evils of words. Three, the condemnation of words. And, and finally, four, the redemption of words. So 
the power of words, evil of words, condemnation of words, and the redemption of words. So let's, let's dive right into it. Let's look at the power of words. With the power of words comes the power of influence. And, and verse 1 reminds the churches that he's writing to, James here, uh, that the words of those who teach will be held in greater strictness. Now, teachers in Jesus' day would be akin to our prominent social influencers of our generation. They, they had platforms that were visible in the public squares, and, and they had endorsements and teachings that would carry major weight to those who followed them. And, and James's caution is that many should seek the power of becoming a teacher because those in a position of authority are held responsible for the power they have in their words and the ways which is communicated, and more so for the teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, James is echoing his brother Jesus in Mark 12, 40. That for those Christians who, who like to be seen, who long for power through the power of words, who long for the best seats in the synagogue and, and the places of honor in the feasts, those who devour widows' houses and, and for pretense make long prayers, Jesus saves some of his strongest words for them in Mark 12. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. But it isn't just teachers that should consider the power of words. It's all Christians. And then all of us stumble. Verse 2, James makes a bold claim that if anyone can speak rightly all the time, this perfect person is a perfect person. I want you to realize the gravity of what James is saying here. The power of the words is the power to define your ethics. And if anyone is able to do this perfectly, then their moral character is without sin. So, so okay, so, so what does that mean for us today? There's many ways that verse 2 can be applied, but, but I want to focus on one popular notion that we need to debunk like right now. And this is license that we've given to influential people with this line that we say, you know, I don't care what that man says. I just care what that man does. Now, now, now certainly we know what is meant with a phrase like this. Oftentimes, we, we have people who speak imprecisely and that their actions do indeed speak louder than words, but, but Scripture is clearly rebuking this line of thinking. The Bible is saying here, show me a person, and I will show you who they are and how they speak. Our words are not just a slip of a tongue. They are open a window to our hearts. And give us access to the master control room of the soul. And this is why James is talking about the power of words to control us. Verses 3 through 5 give two analogies to drive home the controlling nature of words. Like a horse being guided by a bit. Like a rudder that controls a ship. We can move our tongues to take us to the destination of drawing near to Christ. Or we can take our words and steer us off a cliff or smack into an iceberg. In other words, James here is saying that the way we use our words is an outward expression of the God that we worship. You see, if you worship yourself, you will believe that authenticity is God, and you will want power for yourself. I.e., you'll say, you know, I can say whatever I want. I'm just keeping it at 100. Why? Because I am king. And if you worship others, then people-pleasing will be your God. And you want others to have power over you. And you'll say, you know what? I will say what you want me to say. Unless, of course, you want to stop me. <laughs> but if you worship Christ, then he will control your speech. 
and guide your steps and give it true power because it will be him controlling your life in the best way possible. You will say, I will say what Scripture wants because Jesus is king. Do you know why we find extremism on social media so disturbing? Because at the end of the day, it's a disgusting way to try and gain power using words. In the search for all the things that we've talked about, influence, morality, control outside of Scripture, we see individuals at an alarming rate presenting fictitious identities of themselves online and others and using further words to divide, separate, manipulate people into an us-versus-them narrative that brings us into perpetual verbal war. And it's gotten so bad now that organizations have been started up to try and understand how could have this happened within our culture so quickly. Dr. Chris Bale, in his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, talks about his work as the director of the Polarization Lab, an organization that uses computational science to determine how social media became so divided and radicalized fringe views. His work comprised of interviewing political extremists who appeared to be brash and violent in their posts, but the surprising nature of his research was that when he met the extremists in real life, he was shocked that the way that they acted were shells of the online personas they had created. He discovered that they sought to use their online experience to curate a new identity, an identity that would be more bolder, brasher, and angrier than the persona in their real lives because their real lives were destitute. They were struggling. But in doing so, the personas they created didn't give them the power that they had hoped. It was the delusion that led to the depravity to go amok in speech that did radical harm to others and as a consequence silenced the voice of the moderate. His conclusion after this research was groundbreaking. And I want you to hear this. His research suggests that contrary to popular belief, the echo chambers and algorithms are less to blame for the polarization than the individuals who in their total depravity tried to use words to create power for themselves when they had none in the real world. For example, he found that in Twitter, 73% of tweets on politics that are, are shared online, all of the 73% of tweets on, uh, on tweets on politics, are authored by 6% of Twitter users, all with extremist views that further to divide polarization. I mean, is this no wonder that we feel dread when we log on to these platforms about the new daily trauma that we're going to hear about? And this leads us to our second point today. The power of words will inevitably lead to the evil of words. The evil of words. Verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, stains the body, and destruction leads the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Notice that James here is not just talking to the individual. Again, I want to stress, James is asking for the church to think about its collective witness in the way that they talk. Imagine hearing these words as they were read out loud. And then thinking to yourself, wow, you know, we can say things to one another in such a way that render us entirely ineffective 
and indeed burn the whole body of Christ down to the ground if we are not careful and cautious in the way that we speak to each other and speak to the world. In other words, our words here in our place as Redeemer Presbyterian will be either one of two things. We're either going to be a catalyst for the kingdom of God or a catastrophe of hell. To speak like a Christian is for the church to speak like Christ. The church's word can be a spark that burns down the entire force of disciples that the Great Commission is calling us to make. Think of the California wildfires and the destruction that is caused by the sheer ridiculousness of a small match, an untended campfire, or, you know, because it was 2020, a gender reveal party in the case of the El Dorado fire of last year. There is no so such thing as a small slip of the tongue that cannot and does not do irreparable harm. There is nothing in the category of Christian community of the innocent lie or harmless gossip or true fiction. But verse 8 reminds us that all such things are a restless evil full of deadly poison. We cannot try and make evil good no matter how much we dress it up. It is unrelenting the ways in which our tongues and mouths can cause trouble. Amen? I you to look in your bulletins. I added a little insert there from the Westminster Larger Catechism, our denomination's confession of faith. It has to say about the very issue of the ninth commandment of thou shalt not lie. And when we hear that thou shalt not lie, we may think of maybe one or two things. The Westminster Divines came up with 63, to my count. I'm going to read this full because I want to see the weight of what the evil of our words can do. And I'll get through this quickly. In the live stream, it should be displayed as well. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public justice, giving false evidence, bringing false witnesses, witness wittingly and appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of righteousness and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence and a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or unquestionable expression to the prejudices of truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious, boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller fa faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against a just defense, evil suspicion, evying or grieving at the deserved credit of endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful for content, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. And what comes after that is over a hundred scriptural proof texts showing how much God hates this. As you heard this, what jumps into your mind? If your first instinct is to want to apply this to them, as opposed to apply this to you, 
then I might ask that in your spare time you read this again and ask yourself some questions. What evils have we allowed to store in our hearts and in our speech? How have we allowed the poisonous nature of our words to allow the devil to gain a foothold in our hearts and in our lives? Do we really consider the weight of all that is meant when we say, thou shalt not lie? Because here's the thing. I don't know about you. Maybe Charlestonians are better than people from Maryland on their tongues, right? I don't know. But (laughs) when I look at this, when when I examine this personally, I, I realize that apart from the grace of God, I'm not just a liar. I am a profoundly wicked liar. And I will not only find ways to lie about the way that I did not lie, or that I did lie, rather, but I'll also lie to myself about why I did it. And I can only come to one conclusion. If what the Bible is saying here about words and the tongue is true today, then I am not only being poisoned by these lies, but that I'm actually bringing hell to myself and to others and to the body of Christ. But there's something greater here that I think that the Westminster divines wanted us to see. And I want all of us to consider here today. That if if this is indeed the weight of all sin that we are responsible for, the grace of Jesus Christ is a far greater fountain of hope than any of us could have ever imagined. A God who looks at the weight of all of just these sins about words and the death that, that we are responsible for and takes it upon his son to save these people, these profoundly wicked liars, so that they know the true, full, and free love and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we fail to see that, we will fall into the third danger of our text today. You see, it's, it's not only that words have power, that words become evil, that there carries condemnation an unlawful condemnation in our words. The end of verse 9 in our text show that Christians live in hypocrisy of proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and then turning around and using that same mouth to curse those that Jesus died for. It is the ultimate hypocrisy to sing in the church that God is our Father and Jesus is Lord and then turn to others and try and prove that you are the God of the universe by cursing them. You see, cursing here is not merely just the use of certain words and phrases. The word has the force in the original language that James is writing in of condemnation, speaking slander towards fellow men. There is a final judgment quality that you are making on an individual when you speak ill of them. A self-righteousness you are imposing on that person or group or that tribe or that church or that public figure when you are slandering their name. And when you do, James says, no, no, no. See, you are forgetting the Jesus that you worship. You are the person who looks into a mirror, sees a sinner who's been redeemed by the grace of God, and then forgets what he just saw and smashes that mirror over the head of another image bearer. How do we try and get away with this? What do we do? I want to I address just one way that we as sinners try to cleverly absolve ourselves of this hypocrisy. You know, and this is something that I've seen being talked about and shared amongst Christians lately. What concerns is that Um, me is that I hear people claiming that it is okay for them to slander other people's names because after all, didn't Jesus do it? Didn't the apostles do it? 
Didn't John the Baptist do it as a part of their prophetic witness? So why can't we do it? I mean, if it's okay for Jesus, isn't it okay for me? Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees twice the sons of hell, a brood of vipers? Why, why is a Christian only limited in speaking loving words if Jesus himself, after all, used what we would consider to be inflammatory language? My, my, my quick response to that is, is very simple. Um, you are not Jesus. <laughs> um, slander is slander. And don't bring Jesus into your sin. But if you want a more detailed Reformed response, Herman Bovink, a Dutch Reformed theologian, quotes the Genevan Reformed Benedict Pictic and proposes three corrections to the Christian who think it's okay for them to speak in such a manner. Number one, you aren't Jesus or the apostles, so there are privileges and benefits that aren't granted to you. Two, God has granted Jesus the authority to give rightful judgments, and unless you have new revelation from God telling you to do it, you don't have that authority. And three, the purpose and goal that Jesus and the apostles has in mind with their fierce denunciations differ greatly from what people generally have in mind when they berate others. You see, the danger is the prevailing nature of humanity is that we are addicted to slander as a means of public discourse, and we would want to use Jesus to justify it. Christians of every age, unfortunately, have embraced this, not just that our current age. The apostle Peter admits to this, the apostle Paul admits to this, the early church father, Tertullian, even uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther, the champion German reformer, was so famously irresponsible with his slander that you can actually today go to a website called the Martin Luther Insult Generator, where it will randomly generate for you some of his most famous verbal thrashings. They're really funny, but please don't use them in your own speech. You see, while we, we tend to lionize those in church history, don't we? But we need to stop defending their poor speech as being courageous or contextual, and instead consider how our speech is trying to replace God as judge and to make us the center of moral righteousness, of which we have no ground to stand on. Perhaps it would be better to take the stance of a true reformer, John Calvin, who writes in his commentary on James 3, he who truly worships and honors God will be afraid to speak slanderously of man. So what, are then when do you do? so what then are we to do? Perhaps you come to this point of the sermon and all you feel is guilt. You see yourself in these sins and of these exhortations and you feel quite helpless. Or maybe perhaps the sermon has made you defensive. Maybe you've reacted emotionally the other way. And you're thinking to yourself that it seems as though I'm, I'm asking you to just simply say God is love and kumbaya. Um, and, and look, I get it. Look, we're all afraid of word policing and, and tired of inauthentic voices in the name of civility, but, but Scripture is giving us something higher to shoot for than just merely omitting words from what we say. This just leads us to our fourth point, the redemption of words. Verses 10 through 12 give three rhetorical analogies, a spring that produces two kinds of water, trees that produce different kinds of fruit, and a salt pond producing fresh water as a means of showing us what redeeming words need to look like. The redemption of our words can only come for our identity, specifically rooted in our identity in Christ. When you live out your identity in Christ, the natural outpouring of your speech will be the overflow of the fruit of his grace in your life. Do you remember Jesus, the way that he models this for us? Jesus comes as what? The living word. 
the perfect Logos, who speaks truer than any man before him and any man that would come after him. This word isn't a distant reality that speaks to us from afar and has no sympathies with the state of the world that we live in. No, this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word who speaks compassionately, who weeps for Lazarus, though Christ knows he will rise again. The word who speaks healing to the demonically possessed, who speaks to the lame to rise and walk, who converses with the leper speaks with the Samaritan woman words of grace and an invitation to the bread of life. The word who calls his disciples to fervently teach the gospel of good news calls them to the great commission. The word that forgives his disciples, forgives them for abandoning him and denying him three times despite their just condemnation for their betrayal. The word that saw through the lies of religious people who could wax eloquence and yet whose hearts were far, far away from God. The Christ who speaks words of forgiveness, even on the cross, extending paradise to the broken thief and pleading with God the Father to forgive his tormentors, for they do not know what they do. This Jesus who extends the same redemption to you And he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And because of that, you are his. You are united to him. And now speaking like a Christian isn't about restraint, about how you really could speak if only you really could. No, 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 no. Speaking like a Christian is about speaking Christ's love, grace, compassion, mercy, justice, and truth in a way that opens door, opens the door for redemption to others. To consider how the very words of life you speak will bring new life in the people around you, your families, your relationships at work, your friends. When you live with Christ as your identity, your outflow isn't capable of producing anything else fruit not of this world, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is the hope of James for his community, the hope of the Word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, and by the power of his Spirit is hopefully convicting your heart through this text as it did mine this week. What does it mean to speak like a Christian? It's for the church to rise up and realize that speaking like a Christian means speaking as those united to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the living word. We pray that church would come up and rise up to proclaim the truth and power of your word would produce the fruit that speaks life into a needing world that is spread by chaos, by dissension, by war. May our words bring your healing by telling the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.